Amen. Thank you, team. And that brings up the question, how do we know? How do we know that it is well with us in the midst of a world that pushes against us, in the midst of all kinds of situations that uh, we're facing? I know uh, lots of you are facing. How do we know? And the easy answer to the question, the surface level to answer to the question, is that we know God. But the scriptures are going to give us a much deeper unpacking of that reality. What does it mean to know the God of the universe? Who is he? That's what we're going to step into today. And so, uh, welcome in Jesus' name. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm thrilled to be with you. Um, We're going to be in Exodus chapter 33. So if you want to grab a Bible, you can uh, open there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you or or underneath the pew, depending on where you're sitting. And um, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't own a hard copy of the Scriptures, uh, and you'd like one, we would love for you to take that one home with you. Uh, We really want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God. And if you didn't when you came in, we would love for you to have one when you leave. And so uh, feel free to take that one with you. Um, We're in the series called Building the People of God. And the heart of uh, the way we're looking at the book of Exodus, Exodus is a a powerful, multi-layered story, but we're looking at the book of Exodus around several principles. And one of those principles that we've laid out, especially over the last several months, is that God isn't simply interested in our freedom. He's not just interested in freeing us from sin, but he's interested in our formation. He's interested in shaping us into the people that he desires for us to be. Not just interested in our freedom, but our formation. And uh, we've been kind of dwelling right here at the the base of Mount Sinai. So if you picture, uh, God is up on the mountain. His uh, manifest glory is there. Moses has been back and forth in the glory of God, coming down to the people. And we've looked at these last three weeks, kind of a mini-series within the larger series, um, as God reveals who he is to his people. And we're going to hit the pinnacle today. really the pinnacle of the entire book of Exodus, and uh, I would argue the pinnacle of the Old Testament. This is uh, what you're about to hear is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. So this is, uh, this revelation of God is what the scripture writers are going to bring us back to again and again and again for us to understand who God is. And so I'm going to ask you to listen. AJ's going to come and read for us interaction between Moses and God and the way that God reveals himself to us as we dig into the word this morning. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 15. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, that I and your people have found favor in your sight? Is it not in your going with us that makes us distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you you, you cannot see my face. 
For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face you shall not see. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for we are a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity, pardon our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh God, this is your word, and as we hear it, there's a sense in which we are standing on holy ground. We recognize the beauty of what you've spoken, the weight of what you've spoken, and even thousands of years later, the invitation is based on what you've spoken. And so God, thank you for inviting us in as we come into your presence to engage your word, I pray that you would now guide us by your spirit, that my words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that your words that come from your spirit would direct us, would lead us, that they would land in fertile soil in our hearts, and that they would grow up and bear much fruit. And so God, speak to us. Your servants are listening, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Some of you know the name A.W. Tozer. Uh, Tozer was a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, but is best known for his writing in uh, what's called the mystical tradition, uh, the idea of drawing uh, intentionally close to the presence of God. Uh, He's most well known for a book called The Pursuit of God, but um, I would argue that maybe his most profound work is a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a lesser known work that, uh, that unpacks who God is for us as his people. And uh, Tozer famously begins the knowledge of the holy by making this statement. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a pretty profound statement. It's it's actually, uh, maybe you hear that and think maybe it's a bit of overstatement. The, The most important thing about us. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But listen as Tozer continues to unpack it. He says this, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Were we able to abstract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. So what Tozer says is, if you could remove what it is that you think about God, and you could look at it objectively, you would be able to see where you're going and uh, what would become of your life as it relates to your spiritual journey. And as such, it would impact all of the other pieces of your journey as well. Because if you are moving toward a God who you see as gracious and kind, you will start to live in a way that's gracious and kind. If you uh, start to move towards a God that you see as uh, judgmental and uh, who's standing above you exacting uh, behavior out of you, you're going to start to live in such a way that is judgmental and exacting behavior out of others. In that way, the way that we see God moves us toward him. But our culture has kind of flipped it around. And so what we have often done is rather than seeking an understanding of who God is so that we might move toward God, we instead make God the way that we think God should be. So if, if you and I were to sit down and talk and we were just uh, with, with a blank slate start to t- paint a picture of who God is, uh, you would start to find that your version of God for the vast majority of us is a, a God who thinks a lot the same way that you do about things. Like, um, he likes the same people that you like, and he doesn't like some of the same people that you don't like. Um, He probably votes like you do. Um, He probably holds the same kinds of social views that you hold. He sees the world very similarly to the way that you see the world. We tend to make God into our image, and then in a cycle, we tend to move towards our version of God, which is what we've made him to be looking like us. Um, writer Anne Lamott, who's uh, great at just kind of shooting these one-liners, she says this, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) I think that's accurate, right? Like, if you just look and you're like, well, God hates them too. Perfect. That means that you have created God in your image. The challenge that we have is we live in a culture that not only uh, doesn't have a good understanding of who God is from a biblical perspective, but we actually uh, sit above God in order to cast judgment on him. So it is uh, very easy, it's not difficult at all for you to find an interview where some celebrity or some person in culture will make a statement something like this, I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank. 
I could never believe in a God who would judge people. I could never believe in a God who would send people to hell. I could never believe in a God who would create such a narrow way to heaven. Whatever the fill in the blank is, our, our response to God is, I can't believe in a God who's like this, so therefore, with me sitting in judgment over God, I declare God's not allowed to be like that. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The call of a Christian, of someone who is seeking to sit under the declaration of the word found in the scriptures, is to seek to understand who God actually says he is, and then seek to conform our lives to that image, to move towards, in Tozer's words, this vision of God, to have our lives shaped by that. And Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven, are ground zero for that pursuit. This is the clearest self-disclosure of God by God. And so what I wanna do is dig into the character of God, the heart of God. I wanna look first at the foundation that Moses has for coming to God. That's a vitally important thing for us to see. And then the revelation of God himself. I want us to dig into those two verses in Exodus 34, six and seven to try to understand what it means that God is who he says he is. And then finally, the fulfillment of those truths, where that leads us thousands of years later. So foundation, revelation, and fulfillment. So God is speaking to Moses. If we pick up in verse 17, God says this, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So God is saying to Moses, we are in this relationship. You have asked me to stay present with you because you have found favor in my sight, because I know you by name. I am going to stay present with you. This very thing that you said, I'm going to do. And Moses says, show me your glory. There's this, uh, you can almost see Moses in kind of like an impish grin on his face. Like, like, we've gotten to this place in our relationship now, God and I, where that uh, you've, you've continually responded to me. I've, I, I've come to you with doubts and you've responded to them. I've come to you with requests and you've changed your mind, quite literally, a couple chapters ago. I've come to you begging that you would stay with us and you promised to stay with us. Our relationship has now gotten to the place where I can ask for the big thing. Show me your glory. Show, show me your glory. Like he's, you can see this excitement in him. And, and that only comes out of relationship. If I just meet you, I walk up, I've never met you before, I shake your hand, hi, my name's Brian, it's great to meet you, would you tell me your deepest, darkest secret? Right? You'd be like, um, you're strange, and you'd turn around and go the other way, right? Or you'd slap me or whatever it is that you would do, right? Uh, because we don't have the relationship to uh, ground that kind of a request. Moses asked the question that maybe even a week ago, maybe even a month ago, he couldn't have asked, not because God wasn't willing, but because Moses couldn't handle it. But now, Moses says, show me your glory. For so many of us, we want the glory of God to show up on demand, but we don't wanna put the work into the relationship with God to establish the foundation to receive the glory of God. One of the tricky parts about preaching this passage is that the revelation of God that we're gonna to get to in just a minute is grounded in relationship. And that means that for some of you who have, uh, who have 
built a relationship with God, this is revelation for you to receive. But for some of you who, are, uh, who recognize, I don't have that kind of relationship with God, I want you to hear this as an invitation because there's gonna be a bunch of stuff that may not fully land on you because I can't make it land on you. Like no matter how clearly I say it or no matter how well I, I, I lay this passage out, it only lands on us in relationship. That's why Moses, after uh, this long journey with God, finally could say, God, show me your glory. And so for us, we need to recognize that the revelation of the character of God comes in relationship with him. So if you're hearing this and you're saying, I don't get a God like that, that doesn't make sense to me, this is an invitation in, that as we build relationship with him, he begins to reveal himself to us. And so Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, There's a couple things I want you to see. First of all, God has a name. That's kind of cool, right? Like, God is going to declare his name before Moses. And remember, in the ancient world, your name was equivalent to your character. So um, your your name isn't just Bill, or it isn't just Dave. your, Your name ties into your character. It's not just a way that you're known, but it actually points to who you are. So when God reveals his name to Moses, he's revealing his character, his heart to Moses. So God has a name, that's pretty profound. But if you've been reading through Exodus, your first response might be, didn't he already tell him his name? Like, I thought we'd been there. So uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you go back to Exodus chapter three, Moses' first interaction face-to-face with the God of the universe was uh, face-to-fire, kind of, instead of face-to-face. It was face-to-burning bush. You remember that in Exodus chapter three? Uh, so Moses turns to the side. God's in the burning bush uh, that's, that's not being consumed. They're having this conversation. Uh, God says, Moses, I'm gonna send you. You're gonna represent me before the people. Uh, you're gonna go before Pharaoh, all this stuff. And Moses says, oh, okay. I hear you. When they asked me who sent you, who sent me, what name should I give them? Like, what's your name? And God says, it's translated into English, I am who I am. That declaration, I am who I am, it's actually uh, quite literally, uh, God is saying, I I am who I am, which is uh, the Hebrew uh, constructive that would be like, Away, and the response that Moses has is Yahweh, you are who you are. So we know God in that name, that constructive Yahweh. So every time you see in your Bible, as you do in um, several places through here, uh, you see the Lord all in capital letters or capital, uh, capital L with small O-R-D, but all still capitals. Um, that, that is a, uh, a placeholder for Yahweh, uh, the the name of God. I am who I am. And you can translate that I am who I am, or you can translate it I will be who I will be. Um, But most theologians agree the best way to probably translate it is I am who I will be. So in Exodus chapter 3, God said to Moses, my name, representing my character, is I am who I will be. I will always be who I am. I am consistent across all generations, across all circumstances, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter how you feel about me, I am 
who I will be, and I will always be who I am. So that's what Moses knows about God. But that's not enough. And that's why Moses says, show me your glory. Because he wants, he wants to know, what is it, God, that you always will be? What is it that you are and will always be? And so God says to Moses, um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna hide you in this little cave and um, I'm gonna put my hand over the cave and I'm gonna pass in front of you because uh, you can't see my face and live, but you can look at my back. If anybody comes to you and says they understand what that means, don't believe a word that they say. Nobody has any idea what that means. Like, I, we know to some level, I mean, we know that um, there, there's a, a disclosure of God that's so great that it's too hard for us to understand. We know at a very general level, but like, what is it that God like puts his hand over the, the cave and he's like, look at my back. Like, that's just weird. Like, we don't get it. We don't know what's going on. But what we do know is that there, although God didn't tell us clearly what that was, he did clearly revealed to us. So before we get to Revelation, let's just recap. What's the foundation? The foundation is Moses is in relationship with God, and all of the revelation of God comes in relationship. We need to be in relationship with him in order to receive it. Two, God has a name. There's a name that God has that represents his character. And three, that name will always be I am who I will be, and I will be who I currently am. I will always be consistent. So we know that's true. So who is God? So in, if you skip down to Exodus chapter 34, God comes before Moses, and starting in verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, now listen to this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All right, there's so much there. Um, what I want to do in just a minute is to kind of walk through phrase by phrase and talk about what that is, what, who, who God reveals himself to be. But I want to start by saying God doesn't reveal himself the way that we tend to receive his revelation. Here, here's what I mean. If I asked you, what do you know about God? What do you know is true about God? We would very quickly go to, um, uh, go, go to factual things about God. Uh, we, te we tend to call them the omni-statements. So God is omnipotent, and God is omniscient, and God is omnipresent. So God is uh, everywhere, and he's all-powerful, and he knows everything. A and that's true. That would be true about God. But what's fascinating is when God comes to Moses, that's not the way he reveals himself. He reveals himself in relational terms, not in characteristic terms, not in, uh, in objective fact terms. So like if, if you said to me, I, I don't know that I've ever met Amanda, my wife. T tell, me, tell me about Amanda. I could say, well, she's like 5'3", she's blonde, she has blue eyes, uh, she's kind of fair complexion. And you're like, okay, but tell me about her, right? Like, that, that helps me to pick her out of a lineup. That's great. But, but like, what, what about her? And if I were to say, if you were to say, tell me about Amanda... Instead of giving that list of facts, maybe I would say, well, when, when you meet her, 
She's really warm. She's going to seem kind of quiet, but when you meet her, she, you're going to find that she's really warm, and she loves people. She's really kind, uh, unlike her husband. She's really kind. Um, and, 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 and she's loyal. So even when, when she's hurt by someone, she, she's so deeply for the good of that person, even in the midst of uh, tension and relationship. Like she, she's fiercely connected to people. She loves people really, really deeply. And, and you would begin to, if I, if I continued on that line, I can go for a while, but it would get distracting probably. Um, I, if, I, if I continued down that line, I would be able to explain a lot more of who Amanda was. You may not be able to pick her out of the lineup, but you'll know her when you meet her, right? God says to Moses, not, I know everything, I'm all powerful, and I'm everywhere all at the same time. What he says to Moses is, my character, the way I relate to people, is like this. First, he states, Yahweh, Yahweh, twice. Um, in ancient Hebrew, there was no like italicized and bold. That's what we would do if we were writing it. Like you just write the name once, but you italicize it and bold it. You can't do that. And so in, uh, in the ancient scriptures, if you run to really emphasize something, you say it twice. And so he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, he continues to say that. So Moses says, uh, th- this is consistently true. And, and then he says, I'm a God merciful and gracious. That, te- that term merciful is a, a motherly, a maternal term that's, uh, that's representing the, the connection that a mom has with her children. And that's tied to grace because what God's saying is, I'm the kind of God who loves you the way a mother loves his child, even in your sinfulness. So so do you know, when a mom loves her child, even when her child does the wrong thing, she still has this deep love for that child, even in the midst of the wrong thing. That that love that a mom has, like can get really, really frustrated and really, really uh, tense in the moment, but still has this overwhelming love for a child. That's what God says. I'm a God merciful and gracious. And then he says, I'm slow to anger. Interesting, he doesn't say he doesn't get angry. We'd like to read it that way. But all relationships, real relationships, are are dignified as real relationships because we can get angry with each other. Because our relationship is not at the surface level. It's it's deep enough that we recognize by being in relationship, I'm uh, vulnerable enough that I could be hurt by you, and I'm connected enough that I could hurt you, and therefore, anger has to be a part of the equation because of how connected we are. And so what God says is not, I don't get angry. He's saying, I, I'm committed to you in relationship so much so that what you do, even look back two chapters ago, what you do can certainly offend me and hurt me, but I'm slow to anger. I'm, I, I'm in relationship with you, and it will be a long time before that anger comes overflows. He says, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, It's not just that God is loving uh, in a a steadfast way and faithful, but he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So so there is an overflow, a more than enough of it. So um, as you know, almost all illustrations, about a third of my illustrations revolve around ice cream. 
Um, that's because I have enough discipline to not do that with the other two-thirds of my illustrations. Otherwise, we would just talk about ice cream all the time because what better would thing to talk about, really? Anyway, um, so uh, last night, we had a, a birthday celebration of the Cannell household. Uh, Josiah is going to turn 17 later this week, and we're going to celebrate his birthday. And when you celebrate a birthday in the Cannell household, you have ice cream. Of course you do. Um, and, and, and so I was thinking about this idea of abounding in love and faithfulness. When, when God is abounding in love and faithfulness, the opposite of that would be if, if we're, there's six of us around, we're celebrating your birthday, and I pull out a half-eaten, half-gallon of ice cream, and I say, um, we're all going to share this ice cream. So everybody's going to have like a, you know, a little scoop or a, a half a scoop or something. We're all going to share it together. That way we can all have some. There's going to be enough for all of us. We'll all be, that would be enough for a reasonable family. That's not enough for us. So um, at, at our home, there were six six of us, and we had five full containers of ice cream. That is, we didn't eat it all. We got closer than you might think, but we didn't eat it all because it was abounding, right? It's like, there's more than enough. Like there's, there's, it's, we are not going to run out. Like we will get way sick before we run out, right? We're going to be, we're going to be fine. And honestly, I'll tell you a little secret. Um, if we had eaten those five, there was more in the freezer. Like, there's a lot. There's a lot. We're, we're ready. <laughs> that's, that's God. He's like, the, the, you don't have to meet out love in rations. You don't have to say, uh, you're, you're gonna, God's going to be faithful over here and faithful over here, but he only has so much faithfulness, so make sure you use it wisely. No, he says, I'm abounding. Like, there's more where that came from. There's, there's steadfast love and faithfulness that, that will consistently be there. Wherever you're at and whatever journey you're on, steadfast love and faithfulness is going to be yours. There's more than enough of it. So he says, I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And so this is coming back to his name. He's saying, uh, not only is that true now, um, it, it will continue to be true. Uh, your translation probably has like a little note there by thousands, and it says thousands of generations. Uh, that's not in the Hebrew, but it, uh, most scholars believe it parallels the third and the fourth, which is also doesn't say generations in the Hebrew. The ESV translates one generations and one without generations. I'm not sure why that is. That's bizarre. But, there, but most, most scholars assume that generations are on both of them. So what he said is, I am who I will be, and that steadfast love and faithfulness thing, that's going to be true for thousands of generations. It's going to continue on. I will continue to be that way. And I will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. So you will miss the mark. That's what literally the word sin means in the Bible. Is, uh, it's like an archery term where you're, you're shooting an arrow towards a target and you just missed completely. You've missed the bullseye. And he said, you're going to do that again and again and again, and I will forgive that sin and iniquity and transgression. I, I'm a God who forgives that sin. So if we just pause there on the happy thoughts before we transition, God says to us, I am always who I will be, and that is a God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And most of us just want to kind of settle into that and say, why do you have to put those last couple things on there? <laughs> like, what? So he goes on to say, but I will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children 
to the third and fourth generation. And while a lot of us want to push back from that, we need to recognize that just as much as those first seven statements are true of who God is, these two statements are also true of who God is. And I hope what you'll see in the next couple minutes is we need them to be true of who God is. So first he says that I will by no means clear the guilty. Now it's fascinating that that comes right after God says he will forgive iniquity and sin and transgressions. But I will by no means clear the guilty. And you're saying, isn't forgiving the sin clearing the guilty? Like, what, like what's happening here? Like what, what's going on? Well, what God's saying is, I am a forgiving God and I'm a just God. And I know those two things don't seem to go together in your head, but they're both true. Uh, theologians say there's lots of reasons that God could be saying that he's not going to clear the, clear the guilty. It could be, for instance, some people just don't want to be forgiven. So some people don't recognize that they're sinful, and so therefore there's not a need to be forgiven. Some people tend to blame their sin on other people. Like, I, I know I did that, but I did that because they did that. Like, that's pretty much the whole reason Twitter exists, to blame somebody else for the, what you did. Like, that's pretty much the whole thing. Like, so some people blame other people, and some people recognize their sin, but they, they, they just don't care. Like, yeah, yeah, I did that, so what? Everybody's broken, that's the way it goes. And so part of what God's saying is, if you don't want forgiveness, I'm not gonna force it on you. I will by no means clear the guilty. But there's a tension, a tension between the God who is always forgiving sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. And fascinatingly, God doesn't try to resolve that tension, nor does the rest of the Old Testament try to resolve that tension. And as if that's not bad enough, he then goes on to say, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Whoa. So he says, I'm going to punish your grandkids for what you do, at least is the way it's read. And, and that's not exactly what he's saying, but there is this sense in which he's saying your sinfulness, your, your, um, your waywardness uh, doesn't just affect you. So there are layers that go into this, right? So, um, so part of what's, what God's saying is when you sin, your sin has an effect on the people closest to you, uh, especially your kids. Like, of course your kids. Like, when, when you sin and you separate yourself from God, that will have an impact on your kids and on their kids. But there's also another layer in which um, the, the whole book of Genesis, one of the themes of the book of Genesis, is that sinfulness isn't just in the generation, but it passes from generation to generation. If there's such a thing as generational sin, moving, ooh, something's attacking me, uh, moving from one place to another, generational sin. I don't know, anyway, yeah. Uh, where, where you say, like, you see a sin that Abraham commits, that then Isaac commits, that then Jacob commits, and it's just like this pass through. And, and what he's saying is that our sinfulness uh, can pass from generation to generation, and that the payment for that sin, the consequence for that sin, is found where it's committed. So he's not saying, I'm going to punish the grandchildren for the grandfather's sin, but the, the opposite's also true. He's not saying, I already punished the grandfather for that sin, so the grandkids are okay. What he's saying is, every generation will have to bear the consequence of the sin that they're committing. So uh, one way to say it, John Mark Homer says it this way, I think it's a helpful way to look at it. Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not forgiving. 
So see, what happens is as we sin, uh, there are consequences for that sin and this revelation of God. Remember, this is all part of formation. This is God wants us to be changed by who he is. What he's saying is, I'm merciful and kind. I'm slow to anger. I'm going to be loving you in an abounding, steadfast way to thousands of generations. I'm going to be forgiving you. But sin is going to have consequences. And if you aren't coming toward me, you're going to need to recognize those consequences. So both of those things, again, are, are held together. And they're held together in this tension that God seems to be comfortable with, and Moses seems to be comfortable with, and most of the Old Testament writers speak very clearly into this idea of, I, I wish we could get our heads around it, but we can't. And so God is both merciful and kind and just. God forgives sins and holds us accountable. And the entirety of the Old Testament is going to hold that tension together. So what do we do with that? Well, one of the reasons why these last three chapters, these last three messages uh, kind of work together as this point of revelation is because each one of them finds its fulfillment not in Exodus, but in the New Testament and forward as Jesus fulfills what's happening here in the narrative. So uh, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, uh, the sin of the people, this horrific sin of the golden calf idol, when uh, Moses comes before God, he intercedes and he offers to make atonement, to be the atonement for their sin. God listens to his intercession, but he won't allow him to make atonement because there is a greater Moses coming. Because when Jesus shows up on the scene, he shows up as the perfect sacrifice, the only one who is able to make atonement. And so what Exodus 32 is telling us is not simply that we're broken and God is gracious, but that the hinge, uh, kind of the bridge between our brokenness and God's grace is Jesus himself revealed in a a, a pre-Christ way through Moses, but embodied fully in Christ. So then in Exodus 33, we, we see this interaction around the presence of God, this longing for the presence. What else will make us distinct among all the peoples on the earth if you're not present with us? And, and we see God say, yeah, I'm going to be present with you. And then we see the people start to journey and still walk away from God, even though he's present with them. And you're saying, well, that didn't work. But in Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of that promise where the Holy Spirit comes and embodies, not simply in an external way, but an internal transforming way where, uh, according to the prophets, the law is written on our hearts. Uh, Our heart of stone is removed and our heart of flesh is put in its place and we begin to change to where we desire the things of God rather than desire the things of earth. Not perfectly, but in a way that is actually impacted by the presence of God. So the fullness of the promise comes in the New Testament. In the same way, you have this revelation of the character of God, this tension in the character of God that doesn't come to resolution until the person of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to turn to John chapter 1. There are literally dozens of places through the Gospels as well as through the uh, letters where I could show you this, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to show you one. Um, This is, like I said, the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, and that includes the New Testament. There's tons of uh, reference back to these truths 
uh, in the New Testament, but I want to I show you one. So um, John 1, if you're familiar, probably uh, feels like a Christmas text to you. We talk about it a lot during uh, the, the season of celebrating the incarnation of Jesus. When he comes among us, you read the familiar words, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God. This, this statement that Jesus, who came among us, was pre-existing, eternal, with God, and is part of the creative work. But if you jump down to verse 14, um, John uses some interesting language. He says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacle. It's uh, literally using the same idea of God tabernacling among his people, being uh, his presence amidst the people. It says, um, he came and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And if you skip down to verse 17, it says this, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So there's some fascinating language here. We have the tabernacle referencing back to all of the tabernacle laws that have just been given to Moses. We have this idea of glory. Remember the, the, what preceded this revelation of God is Moses saying, show me your glory. Um, what we were talking about last week was the presence of God being the glory of God among his people. And, and so you, you see this glory connection. But then you see these two words repeated in 14 and again in 17, grace and truth. And because of our English translations, it's not an immediate kind of kickback to us, but the, the original readers would have been reading that, and they would have immediately jumped back to Exodus 34, because that word grace is uh, the, the equivalent of the Hebrew word hesed. It would have been the uh, way that the word hesed was translated to Greek, uh, and so when they read that in Exodus 34, they would have read those same Greek words. And the word truth is the Hebrew word emet, and it would have also been right there just like it was in Exodus 34. Without going into all of the textual details, what I want you to see is that, that John is saying, this God is now Jesus himself coming to dwell among us. This God who's revealed himself, this God who has, uh, has shown us his character. There, there's not this distinction that even today theologians wrestle with between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. But what I hope these last three weeks have shown you is that they're the same God. That the Old Testament God and Jesus himself are the embodiment of the same God. And so what John is saying is this God who has revealed himself to Moses is now revealing himself to everyone and yet this tension gets fully resolved, finally. So what you have is a God who's abounding in love and who is forgiving and who is slow to anger and is merciful and compassionate and a God who doesn't forgive sin, who doesn't allow the guilty to go unpunished and who visits the sin of the parents on their children and on their children's children. So how do you hold those two things together? Only if Jesus wasn't sent by God, but that he was God himself choosing to go on our behalf. See, we don't separate God the Father and God the Son as two distinct people. So God the Father says, you go down to earth and bear the sin. And Jesus says, oh, if I have to, if there's no... No, Jesus is saying, what the book of Hebrews tells us is for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
Like, he, he said, the best plan in all of eternity to bring together the, the grace and truth, the, the love of God and the graciousness of God with the justice of God, the, the only plan in all of eternity is for me as God to go and embody that truth and bear that sin so that God can look at you and love you and be fully just at the same time. He knows. He knows all of your stuff. He knows this morning. He knows last week. He knows 10 years ago. He knows your stuff. And the God who will not allow the guilty to go unpunished can be merciful and gracious to you because the guilty has already been punished. So what God is saying to us is that Jesus comes embodying grace and embodying truth so that he can be the sacrifice bringing these characteristics of God together. The challenge is that God can only be known in relationship with him. So no matter how many times I lay it out, no matter how clearly we walk through the text, no matter uh, what is said both now and in, if I was going to lecture on this for the next you know, five or ten hours, you guys wouldn't make it, neither would I. Um, you, it can't land in any place except in relationship with God. So here's what I want you to hear. There may be a portion of this that just lands on you and you just, you, you're ready, you just celebrate that. And that's, that's what God calls you to do, to respond to the gracious God by coming to him and saying, God, would you continue to be gracious? Gracious. By coming to God, maybe even with situations that you're facing, things that are going on in your life and other people's lives and the world around you, and coming, coming to God and saying, God, I know that you are gracious and kind, that you have steadfast love that's abounding. I know that you forgive iniquity. And coming and bringing that before him. We can come to him knowing who he is. And so we can come and bring our request to him knowing how he responds. But there may be a portion of it that you're just saying, like, I hear that, but that doesn't lodge in my heart anywhere. Like, I just, I, okay, I get the words, but I, that's not the way I see God. That's not the way that I experience God. And I would simply say this to you. If the God of the universe can only be known in depth in relationship, allow this to be an invitation into relationship. Because what you'll find is these things, they become more and more true as you get more and more connected with God. As you walk with him and as you journey with him and as you are honest with him about the ups and downs and difficulties and pain and all the stuff that's going on in your life, you begin to experience God in a way that's not just like, I get it, but is a way that says, I've, I've lived it. And so he's inviting us in. And so for some of you that's saying, I, I'm in, and I just want to celebrate, that's beautiful. But for some of you, you're saying, like, I, I need to step in. And, and for you, I would say there's, there's an invitation, an open invitation that says, uh, the guilty has already been punished. The consequences of sin have already been born. And so while there still may be stuff that you're going to have to walk out, you're doing that before a God who is always with you who loves you, who's gracious and kind and slow to anger and, and abounding with love and faithfulness. And so I want to invite you to respond. 
to just take some time to settle into the goodness of God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and uh, they're going to lead us. And as they do, um, I'm just going to ask you to just uh, set your stuff aside. If you have notes or scriptures or whatever, just kind of set them to the side and allow the Holy Spirit to just speak into your heart because there's uh, different portions of uh, what this text says that, that lands on all of us in different ways. And so I'm going to ask you just to settle your heart, allow the Spirit to speak, and I'm just going to read through these characteristics one more time and allow God through his Spirit to speak them into your heart. So would you just close your eyes, just open your heart, your spirit to the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come and settle us? As we breathe deeply, would you meet us? Speak to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are right now who you always will be and who you've always been. You will never change and that your love for us never changes. We thank you that you are full of mercy and grace. Like a mother with her child, you are always loving us, even in the midst of our brokenness. You're always loving us and inviting us back. We thank you that you are slow to anger, that even when we offend you and even when we sin against you, as much as you hate sin, you're slow to allow that anger to overflow to us. You're patient with us. You're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's always more. There's plenty. The love that you have is not rationed out, but it's received in fullness by us. You keep that steadfast love for thousands. It's continuing on and on and on. And you forgive our iniquity, our transgression, our sin. When we miss the mark, you place the arrow right in the bullseye. You forgive us. And you will by no means clear the guilty. Jesus, we are so grateful that you have come to receive in your body, in your life, the fullness of the penalty that was ours. That our guilt was placed upon you and that we are made right, not because we're right, but because you have made us right. And you visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God, you are through grace the, the one who can stop that generational sin from passing down. It, the, the sin that is ours is absorbed fully in Christ. And so therefore it doesn't need to move on. And so while there are still consequences of sin and you forgive, but the consequence of sin is still a reality for us. It doesn't need to pass down. And so, God, um, I, I stand, I, several brothers and sisters immediately come to mind 
where, where we stand and we say no more. That this sin does not move to the next generation. Instead, it stops with us. God, we thank you that you have invited us to come and experience the fullness of who you are. And so God, give us the grace to celebrate and respond, to step into the invitation that you have. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and in Christ you have invited us in. And so God, we stand in that. Help us to respond to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we